Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. If you're listening and have been enjoying Desert Island dishes, can I ask a small favor? Just pause what you're doing and take 30 seconds to leave a five-star rating and a little review. It really helps to spread the word about the podcast, and I really appreciate each and every one. I've learned something from each episode of Desert Island Dishes, and for none is that more true than today's episode, where I discovered so much I really had little to no idea about before, and that made it really fun. Please ignore my extreme English accent, and I'm sure I pronounce things in the most anglicized way, so I hope you forgive me and enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Saliha Mahmood Ahmed. Saliha was the winner of MasterChef last year in 2017, and she won whilst also working full-time as a junior doctor, often turning up to film the show straight off the back of a night shift. In addition, she has a young son, so the whole thing was really rather impressive. Known for her big and bold flavors, Saliha wowed the judges with food steeped in her family's heritage. She's written her first cookbook, Kazana, meaning treasure trove, and it certainly is that. In an interview with The Times, she was quoted as having said, The other day when I was tired, I gave my husband a jacket potato, and I had one too, and I felt really miserable afterwards. I thought, surely this can't be life. (laughs) Welcome, Saliha. (laughs) Thank you very much. That was quite an introduction. (laughs) So can we just talk about the fact that you not only took part in MasterChef whilst also holding down a full-time job and juggling childcare, but your job, you're a junior doctor. I mean... That must have been very full on. Did you manage to even sleep? That's a very good question. <laughs> yes, life was very, very full on when I was when I was filming for MasterChef. I don't know how I kept myself going at that period of time in my life. I was holding down a full-time, very physically and emotionally draining job. My son was only two years old and he was going to nursery at the time full-time. My husband's also a doctor. I did do a lot of my cooking practice very late at night and very early in the morning. I didn't sleep, but I think because I was enjoying it and I had suddenly... So it's really interesting because in my life, I have always been a very creative person, but I left that all behind when I went to medical school. And then I started working and I went even further away from my creative self. So when I went on MasterChef, it sort of unleashed this creative side. It was like this beast had come out of me and I had to feed it all the time, you know, and because of that, I stayed awake and just did these creative things, which I now had a very good reason to do because one can't go on television and embarrass themselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think uh, I was very lucky to be given an opportunity to allow myself to be creative again. Yeah, that's and, so interesting. Yeah, I think when you're enjoying what you're doing, the time pressure of it doesn't mean anything anymore. And the amount of energy that you have suddenly just multiplies. Yeah, and it's a, it's a sort of sacrifice that you're willing to make. Absolutely. Yeah. But of course, you not only took part in MasterChef, you, you actually won. And I know it was your husband who entered you into the competition. But do you think it was ever in his mind that you would win? 
No, he's a very naughty boy. <laughs> um, he, he entered me without my knowledge. So it took us a while to get over that. I don't think either one of us ever comprehended that I would reach the final, let alone win. It's interesting, actually. My husband said that he always had a sorry speech prepared. Oh. <laughs> so I'm really sorry, darling. You did your level best. You got so far. Look how amazingly you've done, given the fact that all of these things are going. But he never got to use it. Oh, that's adorable. Um, yeah. So he said he used to re- sort of rehearse it mentally before I called him to tell him the result. So, yeah, I think, you know, life is full of pleasant surprises. That's such a good story. (laughs) Let's pause there and talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Yes. My childhood was very, very rich in terms of food memories and very rich in terms of love as well. I have very loving parents, grandparents, um, but particularly my maternal side, my mother and my grandmother, were very fond of feeding and my mum worked and despite that she made really lovely food for us every night and one of the special dishes that she made which is actually quite common in many Pakistani households not something that you'll find on a menu in a takeaway is something called alu gosht shorba Ooh, okay in essence it is quite a thin tomato-based lamb and potato stew that's cooked down very gently with spices until the meat's really soft. It is a stew, not a curry. Okay. And it's usually poured over boiled basmati rice. It's beautifully fragrant and it is just comfort on a plate for me. It's not hot. It's not too sour. It's very savory, very rich. A lot of my friends, yes, I am salivating. So yeah. Excuse me, like swallowing numerous times because, you know, even just talking about it transports me to my childhood. And I find it so interesting that mum used to do a variation of it where she'd do the alu gosh chorba, but then on the side, she would do um, this sort of Arabic relish. So she used to blitz down preserved lemons herbs, tomatoes to make this very salty, very lemony relish that we would pour over it. And then with our food, we would drink laban, which is this sort of buttermilky, savoury, yogurty drink okay. that you have in the Middle East. Because part of my childhood, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Okay. My parents moved there for four years ah. to do with work. And, and we were eating this sort of hybrid between Pakistani cuisine and Middle Eastern food. Uh, which is lovely. So those that is definitely my go-to food. Um, even when I've had, you know, a couple of weeks which have been very exhausting, I will always ask my mum to make it for me and I can't make it. Oh, really? No, I can't. Because <laughs> well, it's not just, quite the same. <laughs> well, I can I can make it technically, but I, I wouldn't even try to because it just doesn't taste the same. It's not a complicated recipe. It just doesn't taste the same. Yeah, there are some dishes like that. Yeah. There? And when I had my baby, I had a sort of horrible, horrendous three-day labour. I had an epidural, so I wasn't allowed to eat anything. And when my mum came to hospital to see my son for the first time, she bought me alu goshoba. And I had it as my first meal after giving birth. And, you know, that just cemented it for me. Uh, Yeah, it was amazing. I wanted to ask you about your grandmother. There's a picture of her in the book as a young woman, and she's so beautiful. And you say that she had a huge influence on your love of food. Can you tell us a bit more about her? Yeah, um, my grandmother was called Asma Noor. She has featured very heavily in my cookery book, Kazana. She's beautiful, 17 years old, sort of hazel eyes, light brown hair, quite plump. That was considered very attractive at that time, you know, to have just be a little bit meaty. 
She loved cooking, but the era that she grew up in, it wasn't typical for women to spend too long in the kitchen. You had a Khansamo, who is a family cook. So she taught recipes to the family cook. And she did go into the kitchen to oversee everything. She had a really gentle touch. When my mum came to England to pursue a career in medicine, she had her children quite quickly. And back in the day, you know, maternity leave and part-time training wasn't a thing. So my grandma came to help to look after us. And we lived in Sutton in Ashfield and we had these beautiful um, fat apples growing off this tree just at the back of where my parents lived and nobody was using them, probably because everybody was busy at work you yeah. know, <laughs> or didn't know what to do with them. So we had apples in every form. I think we had apples in baby food, apples in chutneys, apples in jams, apples in curries, you know, apples with tamarind, just plain apples with salt poured over them. I mean, just every form of apple you can possibly imagine. So she was was, really creative. She's creative and frugal at the same time. So she didn't believe in wastage. And I think her love of food and her love of feeding people is something that's just been passed down to us. Yeah, there's a line in the book where you say she had a food philosophy of frugality, simplicity and above all flavor that has been passed down the generations like a precious gift. I just thought that was such a lovely line because when it comes to it, those are the gifts that really matter, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, those are the gifts that you have with you all the time, day to day, that you don't realise. Yeah, absolutely. The second desert island dish, what's the first dish that you learned to cook? The first dish that I learned to cook myself was a roast chicken dinner in a very classic British roast dinner. So mum used to do masala roast chickens and she used to cook the roast chicken in like a yogurty masala sauce which was lovely. But then I decided that I was going to do it properly. <laughs> Obviously, my mum's version was proper as well. But at the time, you know, I said, I'm going to do it properly as a 12 year old or something. I kid you not, I stuffed a whole 500 grams of butter under one chicken. That sounds like my kind of chicken. Yeah. I mean, it was <laughs> swimming in butter. It was practically confit. you know. But the, <laughs> that is a lot of butter, yeah. It was a lot of butter. I had it under the skin. I rubbed it all over the flesh. And I just put a couple of lemons in there and salt and pepper, covered it up for about an hour and a half, and then uncovered it to let the skin brown up. And it was, I mean, it was stunning. It was so good because the meat had practically confit. Yeah. Uh, in the amount of fat that I'd put in it. And I cooked it quite low and slow without realizing at the time, actually, what I I was doing. It just kind of turned out delicious. And the skin went really, really crisp at the end. So everybody loved it. It probably wasn't good for anybody's waistline, but, you know, c'est la vie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That sounds absolutely delicious and something I, I know I'm going to have to try very soon. It would be hard to categorize your food into just one genre. Like there are such obvious influences of Southeast Asia, ancient Persian influences, Central Asian foods. And it sounds like you had the most wonderful summer holidays traveling through India, Pakistan, Kashmir, the Middle East. Tell us a bit about those holidays because you can see how influential those traveling experiences must have been. Yeah, I mean, my dad has wanderlust. He loves touring the world. And to this day, I mean, he plans these really extensive, elaborate holidays for the family, which unfortunately I'm unable to attend now because of a young child and a job. But um, yeah, it was his really his passion to show us the world. 
and he he loves it and bless him my mum hates traveling oh no does she yeah, she hates it she just wants to go to a relaxing beach holiday and it has never happened and i oh, don't so think like it's going away just not sort of no and not so, yeah not in the same way that my dad likes okay. it and bless her it's never gonna happen <laughs> because you know it gets vetoed every time we used to eat everywhere. We weren't confined to fine dining establishments. Where we would never eat is in the hotel we were living in okay. because that wouldn't be authentic enough, you know? Yeah. So we had to go and eat where the locals were eating. And it just gave me a real appreciation of what impact food has on a culture and society and also how food can be so simple and shared so beautifully amongst people irrespective of class caste color everything you know and food really brings different diverse people together absolutely um and i i love that and yes i think it did have a huge impact on me in terms of learning about food cultures and how they differ so it was really interesting for me when i won masterchef because one of the key criticisms that i got from twitter and Instagram, etc., was that she can only cook a curry, <gasps> which I found, what? yeah, I mean, I found it really shocking because clearly I can cook more than, than a curry. Yeah. And, you know, it was really interesting that people who really truly understand the food from that region came out to my defence. So I remember Michelle Rue Jr. and Sabrina Rayor and various other people you know, even John and Craig tweeting like, has everybody lost their mind? You know, yeah, that's madness. Um, yeah, because I trace my culinary sort of heritage back to the Indo-Persian region, to Kashmir, and a bit broader into the Middle East and even some subtle North African influences. Yeah, so I mean, I'll to just reduce that to just a curry is so offensive, isn't it? Well, uh, I suppose it shows that there is more work to be done in terms of teaching people about the variations in curry um, because you know curry is too simple a word to describe food yeah definitely I, I think it's something that we all know that essentially we are the sum of all of our life experiences that life is like a woven tapestry of all the things we've done the places we've been the people we've met and I think when it comes to food those experiences and influences are so clear to see which is just mm. so lovely and that really came through in your book thank you very much yeah I, I tried to do that I tried to weave a tale um, I tried to transport people back to my past and a past in India in the 15th to 18th century and you know, it, it is one of these books which is truly transformative. It, it really is very evocative. It takes you back somewhere. Yeah, it, it really does. And you talk in the book about during those those traveling times, sort of food memories were, were being created at every opportunity. And I think that's such a lovely way of thinking about holidays and travels through your food memories. Mm. The third desert island dish. What is the best dish you've ever eaten? You know, this is such a difficult question. and I'm sure other people who you speak to will say that as well. And I had to think really hard about it. And I mean, whittling it down, there's a dish called halim. So halim is a meat and lentil based dish. So essentially you cook down meat and lentils with some spices for such a long time that the meat fibers disintegrate completely into the lentils. And then you top that with a lot of fat, so yeah. <laughs> ghee or butter, some caramelized onions, uh, coriander, and very finely diced green chilies. And okay, I have to swallow again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you say cook for a really long time, sort of how long are we talking? 
We're talking like six hours. Okay. Yeah, six, seven hours until the meat is totally, totally disintegrated such that you can see the individual fibers in the lentils. And the lentils, you know, the they can be varied lentils. So some chana dal, some urad dal, pearl barley goes in there as well. And the history of this dish is is quite, I think, spectacular because I'm from a Muslim family and Islamic culture has been a big part of our life growing up. And the history of this particular dish is that there was a time where there was sort of famine in a region and everybody collated what they had. And most things that people had was a small bit of meat from the meat that they'd recently slaughtered. Their animals had been just freshly slaughtered and they had lentils um, at the time of famine and they cooked them down very gently. And obviously the whole concept was that with by sharing the food, they sort of expanded the volume of it. And as you and I know, lentils do go so, so far. Yeah. And obviously at a time of famine, it was a good proteinaceous meal for everybody. And so the halim dish has become part of the Muslim culture and finds there's various variations of it throughout the Islamic world. So you'll find sort of Persian variations, you'll find... Pakistani Indian variation called Halim, which is what I grew up on, and a Kashmiri variation called Harissa. There are lots and lots of variations of this beautiful dish, and it is something that we used to have on Eid festivals. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, almost like the Muslim version of Christmas, yeah. I would say. <laughs> um, and after a month of fasting in the month of Ramadan, you know, Eid would come and mum would have this ready for us all. And literally, you would scoop it up with these big, you know, chunks of naan bread. And sometimes, you know, you'd go down at night around 10, 11 o'clock once everybody left and everything was clean and take some out of the fridge and stick it in the microwave, <laughs> eat it up and have it there quietly on the kitchen floor. Me and my sister used to do that. I have like a little party in the kitchen floor. Oh, kitchen, like fridge leftovers are the best. Aren't they? Yeah, they are just the best. Is it the kind of dish where your mum makes the best or is it something that you would have in a restaurant? Uh, well, you see, I have tried some restaurant variations and you can actually find some authentic versions in some Pakistani restaurants, not all of them. My mum does make a very good version, but there are other people who also make very, very good versions. So my mum's best friend makes an excellent version. It's usually something that is done quite well in families. Okay, that was a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> well, you have to be. See, it's Halim at the end of the day. <laughs> Wouldn't want to cause offence. So it's so exciting that you've written a book and it really is a truly beautiful one at that. In its essence, it's an Indo-Persian cookbook inspired by the past. It's full of recipes, artwork and many references to the Mughal Empire, but it's not sort of an old school history book. How important was it to you that it went beyond just a recipe book? What's interesting, I think, about cookery books at the moment is that there's lots which delve into a culture of a region. May it be, you know, Persian or Moroccan or Indian or Pakistani, and they are fabulous. But I wanted to do something totally different. And I don't think that there's very many cookery books out there which look at the history of cooking um, from a particular region. And the Mughals were and are, to me, extremely fascinating most people only know them as to be those people responsible for building the Taj Mahal. Yeah. <laughs> but they are really so much more than that. They had this incredible food culture. They traveled from Central Asia through Afghanistan into India and Pakistan, and they cooked and they bought the, the ingredients from the region that they traveled through and made it their own. 
um, and they have this incredibly vast and very well documented food history. But of course, you know, we are living in 21st century Britain and I couldn't just be cooking sort of long, slow cooks and, you know, things which had to be cooked for hours and hours on a stove and required lots of of people and labour to cook them. So the art form really is to take inspiration from the mughals and use their recipes, but do them in a very contemporary way and to bring some of those beautiful snippets of mughal history to life again. That was what I really wanted to do. And I wanted to show people the contribution that the Mughals have had on modern day Indian cuisine, but also on architecture and art and culture and day to day life in India. And people probably don't even realize, you know, all that people know is that one of the Mughal emperors built the Taj Mahal for lost love, which is an incredible story. Yeah. Um, But really, there's room to go beyond that and explore a culture in more detail. I was sort of, when I was reading your book, I was really ashamed at how little I knew. And there was a line in the book where you sort of said there was lots of stuff that you didn't necessarily learn as a child because, you know, going to school in England, we were all learning about the Tudors and it was just sort of a period of time that not that many of us do know enough about. So it was it was really interesting. And you write that food was in fact so important to the Mughals that the imperial kitchen operated as an independent government with its own enormous budget, which yeah, is just believe amazing. That? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still find it fascinating. They were incredible. I mean, they were great horticulturalists. They cultivated pomegranates, roses, they imported saffron from around the world. They, you know, were a huge fan of fruit and nuts and watermelon. I mean, one of the emperors cried when he had a watermelon that was transported over to India from Samarkand. He cried. What, because it was so amazing? Yeah. And he missed his native Samarkand so much that he cried when he ate a melon transported from Samarkand. I mean, these are, you know, brutal people. We're talking about people who you know, they massacred people, they, you know, conquered empires. These are are not soft people. Yet they would cry when they had watermelon. Such was their affinity to food. Yeah. Which is quite astounding, really. Yeah. You say in the book that they're sort of the definition of an oxymoron. And it's because of that, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, these are the same people who would build the Taj for lost love. You know, they they would then go and, and, you know, have these huge wars and conquer territory. So, yes, they are fascinating to study. I mean, they did crazy things, like they fed their meat and poultry sort of saffron and nutmeg and pearls. They (laughs) gave them massage. They gave their their chickens massages with sandalwood. Oh, wow. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I could do with one of them. I I think I could do with one of those as well, actually. So, yeah, they they were quite incredible. Their whole aim was to basically put as much flavor and love into the meat into the rearing of the poultry that would be served to the emperor so that the end result when it was cooked would be completely fabulous and it probably was also the fact that all the menus that were devised were then run past a doctor to check sort of the nutritional values which is so interesting that that was a focus even back then, which I mean, maybe that's a really obvious thing to say, but I thought that was really interesting. Well, I think it's really interesting and also a bit ironic that I'm the author of this book, given the fact that I'm also a doctor. Um, <laughs> so I, I always find that a, a little bit, you know, in, I find it quite interesting. Yeah, that that's like it's the come case. full circle. It's like it's come full circle in Kazana. But um, yeah, I, I think nowadays, you know, doctors don't really oversee menus that much. I mean, I'm probably one of the few doctors in the country who has a huge passion for cooking and is a doctor. There are others, but 
you know, I I think it's interesting that we've sort of lost that. The Hakims, they used to call them, their doctors of that time, would really look at the medicinal and nutritional properties of each ingredient. And they would judge the mental state of the emperor. So if the emperor was very hot-headed, they would feed him cooling things like mint and fennel and yogurts and things which they perceived to cool the temperament. Isn't that, is it Ayurveda? It probably has some origins in Ayurveda as well, but these are also sort of ancient traditions and ancient medicine, um, which is, you know, sort of medicine of the Islamic world okay. that was sort of accumulated over time. Things like turmeric having healing properties and sure. chilies causing more of a fire in your belly, etc. So, yes. Wasn't there one emperor who had sort of a proper temper tantrum over a cucumber pickle? There was an emperor who had a prop. It was a mango pickle. Was a mango. Yeah. So he had. There was an emperor who had a proper temper tantrum over mango pickle because he loved mango pickle. Probably quite a spicy mango pickle. And um, his Hakim, who became very close confidants with their emperors, very close to them, sort of was very angry at this and said, you know, why are you eating this spicy mango pickle? I shall not be your friend anymore. <laughs> um, and, you know, eventually they got over that rucker and <laughs> life went back to normal again. But, you know, it's these beautiful snippets of history, which are quite difficult to actually collate. Yeah. Um, you have to sort of look in various different sources. So, there are some historians in India who've been writing about these stories. Um, there's lots of extracts online um, from various museums, etc. So it was a lot, a very long process of gathering all these snippets of information. They certainly didn't come to me all at once. And I really had to go back to the old texts. So the Emperor Barber had his own book called the Barbanama. The Emperor Shah Jahan had Shah Nama. And, you know, luckily, they were prolific writers and they documented everything which made life a little bit easier yeah oh it's a proper labor of love but it, yeah. it really is beautiful we're on to the fourth desert island dish and that is what is your favorite sandwich i'm a big lover of sandwiches but um i don't like cold sandwiches okay yeah i, I like a hot toasted sandwich nothing wrong with that and my favorite is the bombay sandwich Ooh. street food was a big deal for me growing up i'm a huge fan of any form of street food, particularly from the Indian subcontinent. So the Bombay sandwich is quite special. It is basically uh, white bread and inside you have a layer of cheese followed by a layer of spiced up potatoes. Mm -hmm. So you mash the potato up coarsely as in spices, coriander, cumin, chili flakes, etc. Make it really delicious. Add in possibly even some mango powder to give it some tartness. And then you layer that on top of your grated cheese. And then you get a layer of green chutney, okay? So a good coriander chutney, which has got green chilies, etc., running through it. And you pour that over the potato and you make it into a sandwich. You put butter all over it or ghee all over it on both sides and you toast it. And then you cut it in half and the cheese is oozing and melting and you dip it in tamarind sauce. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it, yeah. it's crazy. That sound, uh, The idea of potatoes in a sandwich is something I could very much be on board with. I mean, carb on carb. <laughs> yeah, you, can't you can't really can't go, go wrong. wrong. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier, obviously, the Taj Mahal. Do we think in the history of the world that is the most extravagant gesture of love that's ever been given? I'm not sure if it's the most extravagant gesture of love. It's certainly, 
I mean, what is an extravagant gesture of love? I suppose, yes, it's the hugest building and the most visible one. And didn't it take like... Yeah, so it took a long, long time. I mean, what I also find really interesting, I watched a program about the building of the Taj recently, and now the gardens surrounding the Taj Mahal have changed slightly. But before, historically, they had placed a water feature in front of the Taj Mahal so that on moonlit nights, you could see a reflection in the, of the Taj Mahal in the water in front of oh. it. So it's really a lot of thought went into it. Um, I suppose the danger is you think it's one of the most extravagant gestures and you can see it so it's very visible. But, you know, even the little gestures of, of love are you know quite heartwarming that is and and one for small gestures you know (laughs) well little notes and chocolates on the side that does it for me i went to visit the taj mahal on my honeymoon and that did set the bar quite high for my husband so i'll be happy to hear you say that (laughs) um but it was in fact the woman for whom the taj mahal was built who is credited with having invented biryani well, yes. So the biryani, this is an interesting history, actually, because the biryani is a topic of huge debate for people. Lots of different regions claim it as their own. So I've said very clearly that I'm not sure where the biryani truly comes from. Yeah. But one interpretation that is recorded in the history books is that the lady who who the, who the Taj Mahal was built for was actually going around the army barracks and saw that the soldiers looked a little bit weak. And therefore, she said, instead of feeding them rice, please feed them rice layered with some meat. And allegedly, this is where the biryani culture came from. Now, you know, whether there's actually any truth to this story or whether it's fable, I do not know. But, you know, even if it's a fable, (laughs) it's a good one, isn't it? It's a good one. We're on to the fifth desert island dish, and that is the dish that you eat the most often. I think I probably eat fish most often because I have a very busy lifestyle, as you know, and seafood cooks so beautifully, so quickly. And one of the one of the recipes which has found its way into my book is one that I cook most often. And it's sea bass, which is baked in lavash bread with saffron butter. So it's really quite simple. Lavash is like a Persian flatbread. We've got a shop around the corner that sells it all the time. And I just go and pick some up and the fishmonger's next door. And I pick up the sea bass and I'm off home. And I always have saffron or other spices at home. So you just melt the saffron into the butter and I put in a few chopped up chilies and a few bits of coriander, slather that on top of the fish and wrap the fish in a lavash parcel and stick it in the oven for 12 minutes. So you're actually cooking it in the bread? In the bread. Yum. Mm. So it's actually quite an old sort of Mughal concept to cook meat inside a bread layer. Okay. Um, But historically they did it in to you know like big vats of meat and then they covered it with bread and then allowed it to steam gently and the bread was like a lid in a way okay but i sort of used that concept for fish and made it very very quick and all you do is stick the bread into the oven for 12 minutes and out it comes and it's a beautiful texture because what you have is really really gently steamed fish in the middle which is so soft and just delicious and then you've got that saffron butter and coriander and chili that really seasons it and then you have a really textured bread because the lavash is very thin so it goes crisp over the top almost like a crunchy croutony sort of thing and the base where you've had it sitting is much softer so you get sort of all textures in one dish 
and uh yeah it's a crowd pleaser yeah and that sounds really what cool. i love about it is that you can make it very quickly at dinner parties but just as easily at home for dinner yeah those are the best those aren't are they? the best yeah tell us a little bit more about master chef how did you find the whole experience I loved it. It was a, um, I loved MasterChef. It was one of the most life-changing experiences for me. It really has changed my life because in a way I would never have my food career if it wasn't for MasterChef. Yeah. And so how are you finding sort of marrying those two different things now? It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to do both very, very well. I don't want to give either one of them up because I love both of them. So I'm one of these people who will never make a choice, but will keep both going. So I I work sort of Wednesdays to Fridays in the National Health Service, plus on calls, so night duties, weekends, etc. But I dedicate my Mondays and Tuesdays to my food career. So whether that's having a lovely, enjoyable conversation (laughs) or writing more recipes or, you know, whatever it is that I'm doing related to my cookery career, I will do on a Monday and Tuesday. Oh, great. Yeah, it's a a, a tricky one. Sometimes I feel like doing more food. Sometimes I need to do a bit more NHS work. But I think it's really nice to have both because when you transition from one to the other, yes, they are very different. But at the same time, you have an appreciation of the other career because you've just gone from doing one and then you go straight to the next it's adds a great variety to life yeah definitely and I was thinking sort of there's so much to contend with on MasterChef because you're in a competition but you're also on TV for the first time I mean the final was watched by six million people there's a lot at stake in terms of the potential that the platform can provide does that put a lot of pressure on you yeah I suppose so I mean I everyone asks me oh that must have been very very stressful for you and I feel like a bit of a fraud I'm like yes it was very it was very hard but (laughs) and yes it was hard but at the same time for me stress is defined as having four people in a recess department who need intensive care support imminently and not having enough doctors to manage them and having someone who's going off and getting worse despite my treatment, that's stress for me. Yeah, it kind of puts things in perspective. Yeah, so cooking a couple of plates of food is not stressful. It's actually a welcome change. Yeah. <laughs> and I find it I, f- I find it really dishonest if I were to say that MasterChef was very, very stressful because actually my day job is more stressful. Yes, it was stressful at points when there's a bit of time pressure, etc. But... I think we all have to think of life as in on balance and the perspective of life has to come in sometimes. Yeah, I think that's very important. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> the sixth desert island dish is what is your go-to dinner party dish? So I have two go-to dinner party dishes, both of which are sort of slightly related. My One of my favorite ingredients is pomegranate molasses and dates. And I have a beautiful recipe, which I actually cooked on MasterChef as well. And I cook routinely for family and friends. And it's this really aromatic, gently spiced, fennelly, date and pomegranate syrup enriched lamb shank. Ooh. It's stunning. It is so, so beautiful. Really dark, luscious. And I do it with a very simple chickpea and aubergine couscous. And I know couscous isn't fashionable anymore, but for I, love me, I, I love it and for me it's just such a great way to eat other things yeah so you can't eat a lamb shank on their own on its own 
And if you put pomegranate and date syrup in a shank, you can't have it with mash or, you know, other carbohydrates like yeah. pasta, etc. So it, it has to be couscous. And it's just so succulent and the meat just falls off the bone. It's sort of sweet and sour and salty and, you know, all those delicious things on your tongue. And it does this really weird thing that spices do where they sort of combine together and make a much more interesting version of themselves and they're what they would have been if they were taken individually. Mm. They're like greater than the sum of their parts. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, fennel with dates and pomegranate molasses and dried limes and chilli. I mean, it's quite a fabulous combination. Yeah, that sounds really good. Do you <laughs> tend to serve a pudding? I do try serve puddings. I I have to say my puddings can often have to be a bit lighter because my main meals are so heavy. So I love fruity puddings. Um, I love light creamy puddings. I do have this epic chocolate and rose recipe in the book. And it's sort of a Turkish delight and chocolate pot, um, which is sort of melty in the center, which everybody loves. But I have to say, I, I don't cook it that often, even though it's delicious because my mains are often so heavy. Yeah, I'd probably <laughs> got a lot of butter a coma <laughs> if I um, if I really did cook chocolate after the mains that I make. That's very generous of you to think of that. <laughs> <laughs> we have a cookbook corner on desert island dishes, and so I want to know what your most treasured cookbook is. My most treasured cookbook is called the Maim Sahib's Cookbook and it's written by Rona Atkinson and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous book uh, which doesn't have food photographs. It is a collection of recipes and stories from the period of the Raj, the colonial era. Absolutely stunningly done. And I think so much to me as is in Khazana is the appeal of history and bringing it to life in your food. And this is one of the few cookery books that really does that. It talks about the culture of the time and the beautiful Maim Sahibs who were um, sort of these British girls who went over to India not knowing anything about the culture of the food or what life would be like. And some of them went in search of husbands and prospects, you know, for the future. And it's, you know, these beautiful little nuggets of history about their life and their interactions with the cooks of the time or the milkmen of the time and, you know, how they got on with them. And it, it pairs it with these beautiful recipes, some which are familiar to you, like Mulligatowny soup or... Um, you know, koftas, etc. And some which are very unfamiliar to people like Chinese style dishes that were apparently cooked in the Anglo-Indian era. And, you know, just this stunning, stunning vision of a culture at that time. And my great aspiration for the future is actually to write a cookery book on the colonial era. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, that, that's my huge, huge aspiration. And I'm currently working on it. Actually. Oh, great. Well, that's yeah, exciting. So, yeah, my, the, that's perhaps what the future holds. And I, I find it this really nice way of how life somehow, sometimes leads you in a particular direction. Because Interestingly, when the Mughal era ended, that's when the era of the British Raj started. So it's almost quite fitting (laughs) that my first cookbook was a modern interpretation of Mughal cuisine. And hopefully the next one will be about the British Raj and the colonial era. Well, we'll all look forward to seeing that. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And that is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. 
I think I'm probably going to shock you with this one because you might expect some sort of, you know, are you going to say McDonald's? <laughs> well, I was going to say chips. So you're okay. 50% correct. <laughs> chips, 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 chips. So I don't know why, but I just love chips. That, I, mean, I just, you don't I just have love to explain them. it to me. Chips I, are great. I, I eat halal, so I, I don't eat meat that's non-halal. But I went once to the to the Midlands, and we went to the Black Country Museum as part of a school trip, and I had the best chips in my life. And they were cooked afterwards. I found out they were cooked in beef dripping, <gasps> so I felt very guilty for eating them. But I then realised that there is an art to cooking chips properly, and loads of people know this already. But you know, the right potato the right consistency once it's cooked through in the center you have to double cook them you have to cook them in the correct fat they can't be soggy you have to have an appropriate amount of salt on them i mean honestly it's not easy and i've i think there are some michelin star chefs who might not even know how to cook chips properly because you know it is an art form it is so are we just going starter chips main course chips pudding chips yeah Yeah. absolutely there is no variation with this i mean yes we can do one with ketchup we can do one with vinegar yeah and we can do one with mustard and burgers we'll have like a tasting table of chips a tasting table of okay well that sounds delicious i'll Mm. get the potatoes ready (laughs) sally her thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes thank you very much I love it when I'm surprised by people's choices and I definitely didn't see her final dish coming. So good. Come and find me on Instagram at Margie Nomora, where you can probably find me cooking something for a fridge forage or a quick one pot wonder. I'm working really hard on some exciting things for the website. Really excited to show you, but in the meantime, there are lots of easy, delicious recipe ideas on there, including a recipe that was inspired by today's episode. The website is desertislanddishes.co. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.